you would, please turn to James chapter 4. As today we learn about speaking no evil. James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. The scripture declares, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we are not the judge of spirituality, Lord. Lord, that which we judge is simply just the comparing ourselves to the scripture that we measure up. Lord, there is only one true spiritual judge, and he makes no mistake. Lord, he falters at no point. Lord, he will never misjudge or speak unrighteously. Lord, so when he declares it, Lord, we must obey. We must listen, we must learn, and we must understand that I must conform to his judgment, not the other way around. As much as the flesh would love for God's standards to change and lower, Lord, they will not, they cannot, they must not. Lord, it is we who must change. So help us today, Lord, to speak no evil and speak the words of life. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. It is the natural position of the flesh to speak in corruption. In fact, it is a fine line between prayer request and gossip, especially within the church. Uh, it is an evil thing, but it is something that we are all guilty of. Uh, there's not just one of us who's worse than the other. It's something that the flesh does on its own. It needs no encouragement to begin to speak evil about someone else. And the reason for this is building is much harder than tearing down. Tearing down is the easy thing, especially when it makes us uh, feel somewhat righteous. It makes us feel a little bit extra holy when we get to point out someone else's error. This past Wednesday, I spoke from Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, about the speck in a brother's eye and the log coming out of my eye. And a similar situation is applied here. James is speaking to a church that is in such a state of persecution and, and, and fleeing persecution that the infighting that they were having going on was disrupting the worship of God that should have happened. In 70 AD, when the temple is under assault by the Romans, the Jewish army lost, not because they were weak against the Romans, they were actually a pretty strong army, they lost primarily because of political and religious infighting inside of the city. In fact, one group of zealots set fire to the grain stores during the siege and ruined the rest of the food provisions to incite the people to fight harder against Rome. And all this led was to starvation and unspeakable evil. The same way when we speak evil about each other, it happens amongst us. We would speak evil and declare upon people what God himself has not declared. How could you say to someone God has saved, you're no good? Has not God himself declared that, no, I've made them righteous in my son. I have changed bad to good in my son's name. How can you, who are not a real judge, declare unholy what I have said is now righteous? And who is righteous? The Christ, the Messiah, the one who has entered the world to save the world from its sin, to save God's people from their error. How can we also, being God's people, 
turn on each other and speak evil against each other when Christ has not. We become worse than the Pharisees when we do this. Proverbs 15, 28. You don't have to turn there. It might be on the screen, but just listen. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So the heart of the Christian, the righteous one, wonders in their mind, what's the best way to answer this? Because what I'm not saying is that you don't ever speak some harsh things sometimes. The gospel is harsh sometimes. But we must ponder how to answer. We, we, we compare it to the Lord and say, Lord, is this good to say? Would this please you? Does this glorify you if I say this? But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The venom just spews out without anything to stop it. It covers and corrupts all that hear it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul, writing to a young church plant, some of the first church plants in Christian history, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, we see the corrupting talk that is disrupting not just church, but the worship of God. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And what is corrupting talk? It's that which glorifies man and not God. That's the corruption that God is pushed down and man is lifted up. This is the corruption of sin in the Garden of Eden. God was left aside and we took of the fruit ourselves after being commanded by God not to. Notice I did not say Adam and Eve. I said we. <laughs> we. Let none of this corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up. Which means that it's never okay to go on and on about somebody and their sin and how no good they are. And we fall into this so easily. I fall into it easily. And even when we mean well, we want to help. But we fall into corrupting talk. Instead, Paul is saying, do what is good for building up. It's the best mentor relationship. Think about a mentor who instead of looking at your attempt and going, that's terrible. That's no good. That's awful. I can't believe someone did that as awful as you did that. How would you feel? You'd be like, I'm not going to ever try that again. I'm not going to ever do that again. No, the good mentor looks at your attempt and goes, good, but here's how we can improve. Here's how we can build upon what you've started. Here's how you can become a master mentor like me. This is what Jesus has done to you. He sent the Holy Spirit to make you like him. Instead of looking at you and going, no good, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why should I save your soul from sin? Instead, Jesus heard your cry for salvation and said, yes, I'm going to build you up. And I'm going to build you into a kingdom made out of holy stones. The Bible says we're each being fitted in to this temple that God's going to raise in heaven that's going to be made of his church. It's good for building up and as it fits the occasion. And there are occasions. There are occasions sometimes. And sometimes building up sounds harsh. You need to repent from sin or you will die and perish and go to the lake of fire. That's harsh, but that's building up. And you might be called to do that. And it's a somber place for that feeling. That should not give you joy to have to do that. The joy is in when we see people we're trying to minister to and witness to grow. I, had a, I have a student who's been working on his cousin. And, and last 
this past Wednesday, the cousin told the student and I that, you know, after coming to this church, I'm starting to believe in God. That's building up. And I don't even know how that situation is going to end, but that's building up as it gives occasion, keep going on, that it may give grace to those who hear. Grace. Why are we so interested in tearing down those around us? I will be honest with you. I submit to you that it is because it is far easier when we deal with ourselves. We become like the Pharisee who looked at the poor sinner praying and said, thank you, Lord, I'm not like this man. We instead should be like the sinner who was on his knees saying, Lord, I am a sinner. Forgive me. Who is God forgiving? Who is God building up? This is the grace that Jesus gave you and I. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, we don't listen. He is the one in our hearts guiding us, telling us what is right, showing us the proper way of righteousness, but we don't listen. Every one of us are like the young child. The parent knows where we're supposed to go and what we're supposed to do, but the young child pulls against the parent's hand. I have a better idea. I think I need more sugar. Brushing my teeth, bedtime, what's that? I don't need any of that. But that's you and I against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is leading us where we're supposed to go. Romans chapter 8. We don't even know how we're supposed to pray. The Holy Spirit makes intercession. And yet we buck Him when we say, I know what so-and-so needs. I know what they need to pray for. I know what we should do. We know. I've only ever been in trouble when I knew. And when God knew, that's when I had peace and rest. This is how we grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't listen. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all the malice. See, Paul writes what the problem is. We're full of bitterness. We're full of anger and wrath. We're angry at the world. And sometimes it feels like righteous anger. I'm angry at sin. I'm angry at the state of my country. I'm angry at all these things. But what is it profiting me? Nothing. Nothing. It's just filling me up with malice. I'm filled up with the venom of bitterness. And it's killing me from the inside out. There's a great anonymous quote. No one actually knows who said it. I checked. But it's just been repeated through our culture long enough. Bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting whoever you're mad at to die from it. Put it away. Put it away from you along with malice. Give up these things that are causing this bitterness in your heart because it's not helping. It's hurting. In fact, it's choking us out. Why does the world have such a good argument against the church? Why do they have so many points they can point to and say, here's all the places the church was hypocrites. Here's all the places they didn't really love. Here's all the places they didn't follow their own Bible. And they're right. They're right. But still our answer should be, world, I'm not even as bad as you think. That's how good my Jesus is. I'm not, I'm so much worse than you guys know. You accusers, you ones who say I'm no good. Charles Spurgeon said, if a man says to you, you're horrible, say thank you, because I'm far worse than you know me to be. But God knows. God who looks into the heart knows. And he's saying to you today, dear child of him, get this bitterness out of you. Put it away. 
returns instead to the grace which says, none are worthy to come, but Jesus has called you anyway. Who was the one worthy? Jesus was worthy. Nobody else was, but he was. And he's called you still, despite the sin, despite the bitterness even now. Even now, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you, making you like Jesus, even despite the bitterness. Verse 32. I love this because we have one of the most intelligent men of the New Testament, Paul. PhDs in multiple, multiple things. And this is his advice to you if you're having this problem in verse 32. Look at this extremely deep, and I'm not sure if we'll even understand this this morning. Get ready. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, you don't have to be the most mature to forgive. You don't have to be the most intelligent. You don't have to be some kind of great leader. All you need is Jesus. And he's forgiven you. And how could we not turn and forgive someone else? Time would fail me to preach on all the, all the parables of forgiveness, especially the, the debtors. We must build each other up, church. The world is seeking to tear itself down, and it's doing a wonderful job. We must combat this with equal measure in building each other up. We, the church, should not participate in the world's evil. We should be kind and forgive one another because we, we have been forgiven by God. See, in truth, we should never have a cause to say, well, so-and-so, they're just so bad. No good. Instead, we have all the reasons in the world to say, my Jesus is the so good. My God is so righteous. My Holy Spirit is so kind and loving. My Lord is such a good God. And that's what the world should see from us. We should not present the picture of the perfect Christian carved out of granite. Because that picture's dead. Granite's dead. It's rock. Instead, we should present the picture of a sinner who did not deserve, but through mercy received salvation anyway. Anyway. And that's why I love Ephesians 2 so much. But God, you who were dead in your sins, but God, you who were terrible, awful, gossiping losers, but God. Oh, we must not participate in this evil that the world does. We must instead build as Jesus builds. I love it when Jesus looks at the temple in Jerusalem and declares this building will be torn down. That would have been great heresy to them. They would have found extreme offense to that. It'd be the same if somebody looked at your church building that you may even help build or pay for and said, ah, that building's terrible. You ought to tear it down. You'd have some feelings about that probably. But Jesus looked at that temple made of human hands and said, no, it'll be torn down because I am building a temple that will never be torn down. It will be raised up on the last day. And who's going to be in his temple? All who've repented of sin and believed on his name. Do you see this? Do you see the qualifier here? It's not us. It's not the background. It's not what we've done. It's Christ. It's that given and risen Messiah. The great Lion of Judah, this Lamb of God that God killed to cover you and I with. He is the one who is righteous. He is the one who can judge. We should not speak evil against whom he 
has spoken good. That's why we have one true judge, point number two. Turn to Proverbs chapter 21. This verse is the answer to why we have different denominations, different interpretations. This is why we have different Bible translations. Because we all think we're doing it the right way. Proverbs 21 verse 2. This verse should be memorized by us. We should know this by heart because it answers so many problems. Proverbs 21.2, every way of man is right in his own eyes. Because who really decides what's right, right? Who really judges? Well, we always do. We decide what's right. But the Lord, now here, here comes the Lord. So we all have what's right in our eyes. We all know the best way, and we're always about telling somebody the best way. But the Lord, all right, that should give us a little quake of fear right there. But the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord weighs the heart. Now we went from knowing what is right to my heart being weighed. Those don't seem to coalesce there exactly at first glance. If I know what is right, why is God measuring my heart? Because it's in the heart where true righteousness is found, if it has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So the Lord is weighing that heart. He says, yeah, you know what's right, and you've told everybody what's right. You've declared to the world with your life that you're right in your own eyes. But God has weighed your heart. God has looked into the innermost parts, where no one else can see, not even mom or spouse or anybody. The voice in your head that is for you and you only is laid bare before God. And God is weighing this heart. And what will you be found Will you be found wanting? Will you not measure up? If you've ever wondered, will I really measure up to God? Here's how you know. God is weighing the heart, and who's he looking for? What's he seeking to find? His son, the Messiah in Hebrew, and the Christos, the Christ in Greek, the anointed one, the one sent to save. That's what God is weighing. That's why in heaven, on judgment day, when you stand before God, God is going to pull up your life. He's going to examine your life. He's going to open the scrolls and everything you've ever done and said and thought is going to be laid bare before all heaven. Do not hope that your list of good is longer than the list of bad. You will not find it. Do not hope that you were just good enough. Do not hope that, well, I just, I, was a, I did a lot for the church. You have one hope on that day, and that's God the Father, the righteous judge, turns and looks to the right hand and looks at his son, the, the Messiah, the Savior, and the son declares, my father, the ones you sent me to give, I got. I didn't fail to get any who called out to me for salvation. All who came to me, I did not cast away. And God, satisfied with the answer from the righteous one, turns and backs and looks at you and goes, well done. Because of my faithful servant, you get to enter rest. That's some speaking good about somebody, isn't it? Go to 1 Corinthians 13. We Bible happen today, but I don't care. <laughs> I love it. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. While you're, while you're there, I'll just read some more of my notes. This is why Scripture must be our law and rule. Because who decides? Different interpretations of Scripture happen. We'll see things differently. Even brothers who are close. 
And we'll disagree. That's why we have to love each other. There are times to judge and times not to judge, but there is never a time not to love. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. Oh, here's some, here's some stuff. Everybody wants to have that prophetic gift, right? Even we do. Even we Baptists do. We all want to know what's going to happen, right? We all want to be able to say, oh, I knew that was going to happen. You know, I've been praying about it, and I just feel like God's doing something soon. We all say it. If I have prophetic powers, if I can look into the future and know what's going to happen, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, all mysteries, having the answer to every question, having the knowledge that surpasses any other, he goes on, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, the same mountain Jesus said a mustard seed worth would jump for you. But if I don't have love, I am nothing. Notice he doesn't say I have nothing. He says if I don't have love, I am nothing. Because the measure of your life is not going to be how prophetic you were, how many mysteries you knew, how much knowledge you had, or how much faith you had. The measure of your life is going to be the love that you had. That's why God, uh, God declared through 1 John, they will know us by our love. This is how we know we are children of Him, and so we are. It's 1 John 3, 1. We must love above all things. For without love, we are nothing. We have nothing. We accomplish nothing. We are nothing. Which is why if you, you, you may know the least about the Bible than anybody else around you. You may know the least about God in this church, but if you love because Jesus loves you, then you've got it. You've got what you need. Everything else is just window dressing for sanctification. You have it. Don't give it up. Don't abandon it. Don't leave it behind. Don't forsake the love of God because the love of God will never forsake you. Isaiah 33, 22. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read it. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. So he's judge because he's lawgiver. So he judges according to his law that he himself gave. He becomes your king because he judges righteously, but he will save you because of his son. See, without his son, God, your king, will judge you based on his law and find you Beneath his law, you haven't measured up. And so he's going to cast you out of the kingdom. But he will save you because he sent his son to redeem us sinners. We who declared to God that we didn't need him and that he was dead and that we got it all figured out by ourselves. The Lord sent his son to die to save. Think about Jesus in the garden. He's praying. He has disciples that can't even stay awake. He's alone. Many times Jesus goes off alone. In our culture, being alone is not a good thing. That's what emo kids do and that's what depressed people do. We don't really understand Jesus' solitude. We wonder why he would do that. In fact, if our leaders and our pastors acted that way, we would be upset. How could you leave me? Why would you go away? But Jesus often does. Why? To be in one communion with the Father without distraction. The Father has sent him on this mission of mercy to save, and he's praying in the garden. Some translations, uh, some gospels talk about the blood dripping from his head. And he's asking God, Lord, if there be any 
other way. And he goes on, because God doesn't answer him in the moment. He goes on and prays, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now this statement is made out of the mystery of the Trinity, because how could God be disagreeing with himself, right? The Son is asking the Father, If I don't have to do this, take this cup from me. But God, the one God, made up of these three persons, but the one God's will is going to happen. It's been planned since the beginning of time. And that's why Jesus, the man in flesh, can say, Not my will, but yours be done, Father. I'm going to go die. I'm going to go be beaten and whipped and spit on and humiliated. That's what he despised. He despised the shame going to the cross. For Lord is judge, he is lawgiver, he is king, and he is savior. The one true judge will judge rightly. And in his righteous judgment, we find our salvation. See, God knew when he set it up at the beginning of time, when he formulated his great plan. Because remember, I'm being a little cheeky with this next statement. God can't both have a wonderful plan for your life and you get to decide all of it. Those two things don't work out together. Not at all. And I'm glad that we're the ones who are wrong. It's God who has the wonderful plan. God sent his son, the lamb that has been slain. If you look at Revelation 4, we don't have to turn there. I'm just, I'm completely off my notes now. I'm just talking. If you look at Revelation 4, the lamb comes in having just been slain. The appearance of blood upon this perfect lamb who is worthy to open the scrolls. And John, the witness, is weeping in Revelation 4. No one was worthy. Salvation's not going to happen. Except the lamb who was murdered comes in. And how does he come in? Because he's been resurrected. How should that affect your eschatology? Let's talk afterward. (laughs) He comes in and opens the scroll that saves. The scroll of names. Names that haven't even been born yet, depending on where, again, you place that event. The names of God's people that Jesus was sent to rescue. This one true judge judges rightly. Church, I want to encourage you today. We've got to stop the thinking of of counting sin and counting righteousness. Because your sin is incountable. There's no way to measure how awful we really are in the presence of God. And I'm so thankful that there is no way to measure the end of God's mercies. The ones that renew every morning because I need them renewed. The ones that will never run out. The sin that God will take and cast as far as the east from the west. His mercies are even more infinite than that. And He loves you. This God who created this universe and this world and this Bible and this church and all His people. He loves you. You. And what did you do to deserve it? I have, no, I have nothing to offer God even to answer that question. What did you do to deserve God's love? I don't have anything. Anything. All I have to say is, is he sent his son. And I cried out to that son. And I found my redemption in that blessed Messiah. In James... He talks about, who are you to judge your brother? Well, we have to ask the same question. Who are we? Who are we this morning? Turn to 1 John chapter 3.
1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Who are we? Because I'm afraid it's easy to get a little spiritual amnesia and forget the origin of our spiritual life. Life takes on a toll. Life gets busy. It gets very textile and physical, and often church begins to feel the same way. But who are we? 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now we are called not only to stop speaking evil, to speak what builds up, but now we're called even to die. Lay down your life for the brothers. And that means a lot of things. You could lay down your life just by agreeing, well, you know, the church wanted to go to this summer camp, and I didn't want to, I wanted to go over here, but I'm, I'm going to go with them. Or they all, the seniors wanted to eat at this restaurant, I don't really like that restaurant, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go. That's laying down your life. But you might even get to the point where you lay down your life physically, eternally, for the last time for your brothers. Church history is full of martyrs who died saving someone else, taking on the blame for someone else, taking in the very place of Christ, his example of dying for us. They died for somebody they loved. We lay down our lives. But verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, we're not talking about being a good steward with God's stuff. We don't just take God's stuff and just throw it everywhere, you know, and waste it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, how can you close your heart to a brother in need? Because we're talking about a brother. We're talking about a fellow Christian. Somebody you go to church with and you know and you love. If your heart is close to that person, John is warning you, how does God's love abide in you? And this verse should cause concern in us. Because there are times when I think we could all say, yeah, I, I was growing a little cold in that situation. I was growing a little cold for that person. Is God's love still abiding in me? I would say it is because of Jesus. Those mercies that are renewed every day is renewed even now. Little children, here is the admonishment. Let us not love in word or talk. Now John has moved past all the talking no more gossiping or even building up. He's gone past all that. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Deed and in truth. Why action and truth? Because actions reveal truth. If I say that I love you, that I never do anything that demonstrates that love is what I've said true. It may or may not be, but there's no way to know. If I said I loved my family, but abandoned them for my own pleasure and, and desires, is my love for them true? Not at all. I must love in deed and in truth. Jesus died for us that we should die for others. Why would we close our hearts to others when Jesus did not? He went to these sinners, these, these prostitutes, these tax collectors, even these Samaritans. Jesus had an open heart for God's people. Why would we have a closed one? And think about the things we close off for. The differences in our interpretation of Scripture. Different denominations, different ways that other Christians view things. If they're claiming Christ, then we have to admit that at a certain point, we could even disagree on some theological point. But if they are truly following Christ, they're my brother. They're my sister. And i got to abandon these fleshly notions of being right about every single little thing. And instead, love. 
And in love, because soon critics will say, ah, but you're approving a sin or you're doing some other thing. No, I'm not. Because if I love with Christ, then I can't approve of sin. And if I love in the name of Christ, I can't be wrong theologically. If I love, I cannot be wrong. If I love in God's love. If I love in God's love. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 6, 34. Turn to Mark 6, 34. It's often been said about pastors and ministers that they need to have a thick skin and a soft heart. Because if I have thin skin and a hard heart, I'm easily offended and I don't want to love anybody. But if I have thick skin, I'm not so easily offended and I have a soft heart, which means I'm ready to love. Mark 6:34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. You and I were once in that crowd. Sheep without a shepherd. Lost men and women. Wicked, evil, vile people whom Jesus saved. No longer should we be in the business of, of rooting out who's really Christian and who's not. Instead, if we would be so about Christ, everything else would take care of itself. Peter, when Ananias and Sapphira, think about this for a second, they brought money into the church and it went so badly, they ended up dead on the floor and had to be drug out. That's a bad Sunday morning, okay? And Peter was not about rooting out their sin, knowing all about them and all this. No, no, no. Peter was so about Christ. He was so about following the Holy Spirit. He was so about what was righteous that their sin showed up. That's how we should be, church. We should be so about Christ and so righteous and following God so closely with so much holiness that we won't even have to call out people. The, the Spirit will do it. It will convict people. It will send them out if they're not supposed to be here. It will convict them and they'll repent if they're supposed to stay. Isn't it great when God does the work? They were like sheep without a shepherd. Go to 2 Corinthians 8 9. Oh, the riches of Jesus. How could I abandon them for anything less? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know, talking to believers now, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many in here right now just want to say amen on that? <laughs> I know the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, and what kind of rich are we talking about? We're talking about sitting in the throne room of heaven being worshipped eternally. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. How did Jesus go from being rich to poor? It didn't involve money at all. Jesus went from being rich, God, to being poor when he became a man. Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, you, by his incarnation, might become rich. Now think about this. If rich for Jesus is being in the presence of God and heaven being worshipped, yet he had to become poor, he had to take on human flesh, he had to die so that by his poverty, his death, you and I might become rich. What's the standard we've just agreed for rich? We get to be before God in heaven. 
by his poverty, we might become rich. I love this image. Jesus spent 33 years in human flesh, far, far too long. Worse than anything anyone else has ever experienced. I heard, I've heard it described as when you get a uh, nasty bug on you, right, and you get it off as quickly as possible. I shouldn't tell this story, but I think I have time. It's kind of funny. It, it's, it's not very serious. I had some men come to my house yesterday, and they're helping me with drywall. And it was awesome. Thank you guys who came over. We got that drywall done. My brother-in-law, Kyle, came to help me, and he and I were carrying pieces from the garage to the work site. And as we're carrying it, I feel I'm carrying the back, and I feel a thud hit my hat and then land down on my shirt. And I'm like, before I could think, what's that? I felt it crawling back up my shirt. And as I got a glimpse of it going about this way, I saw what I can only describe as a dinosaur, <laughs> which felt like jelly, climb onto my neck. And I begin to go, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> And Kyle in front of me is like, are you all right? What's wrong? And I'm like, just keep going. Because <laughs> I'm cheap and I didn't buy extra drywall. So we got to carry this piece. And I, and I get the piece down and the jelly feeling small dinosaur has left my nerve endings. I cannot feel him anymore, which brings even more terror to my heart. We get the piece sat down and I just turn and I go, Kyle, look at me. What, where is it at? <laughs> and he's like, where's what? And I'm like, what, something's on me. And he has the audacity to go, that little gecko? <laughs> When it was crawling on my bare skin. <laughs> if you've ever had a creepy crawly on you, right? Maybe you've accidentally gotten some maggots on you, taken out trash, something like that. You face first into a spider's web, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? That was flesh for Jesus Christ. And for 33 years, he lived with that feeling but he did it for you and I. He did it for you and I. Go to 1 John uh, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19. We were there a little while ago. This is where we're going to finish up this morning. 1 John 3, 19 and 20. By this we know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. You ever felt convicted before God? Lord, am I really even saved? Because I see the sin in my life and I question how could anyone really be saved if they acted just like I acted? If they thought just like I thought? If they said just what I said? That's what it feels like. <laughs> We have to have our hearts reassured. Look at verse 20. And I hope this verse just encourages you beyond measure because I am encouraged beyond measure. Verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us. And why does our heart condemn us? Because we read the scripture, we pray, we seek the Holy Spirit and we find out. Like King David found out from the prophet Nathan, I am the one who sinned. I am the one who was wrong. I am the one being judged. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. 
Church, we got to change our language a little bit. We got to quit saying things like, oh, I know their heart, or I, oh, yeah, I, I'll judge this or that. No, 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 no. God knows. God knows the heart. God is greater than that heart, and He knows everything. Our hearts condemn us because we know that we have sinned. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we are naked before God. When we fail, God is greater. When we sin, God is greater. When we fall, God is greater. He is supreme, just, holy, righteous, sinless, perfect. He is judge. He is king. He is Lord. He is your God. And he is greater than even your heart, which may condemn you. If your trust is in a condemning heart today, it's in the wrong place. Get your trust out of your condemning heart and get it into the one who is greater than your heart. God is greater. Thinking back to the beginning of James, he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? And there's times you are called to judge your neighbor. Matthew chapter 7, I preached it Wednesday night, declares it. However, the one who's able to judge his neighbor is God, who is greater than that heart. And if the Holy Spirit's leading you to make a judgment, it is for the building up and benefit whoever's on the receiving end. The prophet Nathan judged King David harshly, but it was to build him up and cause him to repent and glorify God. So who are we? Are we going to run around speaking evil of each other? Or are we going to declare the word of God, illuminated by the spirit of God, the graciousness of Christ the God, and the mercies of God the Father, who is greater than our hearts? He is greater today, church. Let's worship him for that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much. You are greater. Lord, because my sin sometimes feels immeasurable. It feels like there's no end to it. How can I ever stop? I try to fight it. I try to cause it to stop and cease. But Lord, it comes back. It comes back. It comes back. Lord, I'm so thankful that this is not the battle. The battle is that you have already won victory. You have already defeated my sin. And though I may struggle with it now, Lord, no more than the mother giving birth struggles with the pain. One day, Lord, one day it is coming. Lord, I will be received into your throne room. The Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted as my Savior. And I will join the ranks of a heavenly choir singing holy, holy, holy forever. Lord, you are greater than my heart. So let me speak always in your greatness. And let me edify, love, and encourage those around me. Let me build up as you have built me up. Lord, you are greater. And I worship you for that. In your name I pray. Amen.